Morning, everyone. How are we this morning? All right. Listen, we've got an exciting topic this morning. I want to mention a couple things as we begin this morning. Again, I want to welcome you this morning. I want to welcome those who are joining by, you know, I ha- it's funny, you have the campers who say, I heard you this morning. What that means is I I woke up and I really was thinking about getting out of bed and I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do it, but that's fine. You're listening and the Lord, you know, faith comes from hearing, not by seeing, right? So that works. And those who are are streaming online want to welcome you this morning as well. Um, Yeah, this, I want to mention to you, I've talked about loosely uh, basing this, I say loosely, on the book Steps to Christ because there's so much in that book. You know, yesterday we talked about repentance, but we really didn't get into the confession aspect of it. Uh, those two chapters I wanted to cover, but there's just more that you can co- than that you can cover. There's 13 chapters in the book Steps to Christ. I'm saying that because as I had gone through that and I am going through it in preparation, there is, there is so much rich and beautiful practical instruction in that book that goes so well with what we're saying, better than what I'm saying and how I can say it. I just want to encourage you, if it's been a while since you've looked at the book Steps to Christ, or if you've never read the book, go through that book and it will be, it will, I, no matter where you are in your experience, it will help you to step closer and closer to Jesus. Uh, in fact, I like to tell people, it doesn't only help you to step to Jesus, but also with Jesus. And so, uh, this morning, we're going to ask that the Lord would bless our time as we move forward in our series. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me. I'm going to kneel and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning for your presence. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to come together and study. We know it's not an opportunity that we will always have. I pray that we would treasure it as we should. And I pray this morning, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, Lord, to keep us free from distractions. I pray that you would not only be with my words, but we with our ears and our hearts that we would receive and embrace the truth you have to teach us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our series is entitled Going the Distance. Looking at my AV man and I'm thinking, oh, I didn't put anything up there yet. Today I want to talk to you about justification by faith. Now yesterday we had talked about uh, repentance. We learned that repentance is the first step toward Christ. And the first part of repentance, as we talked about yesterday, is sorrow for sin. And that's something that we can't do. We can't just muster up sorrow for sin or make ourselves sorry for sin. It's God's part in drawing us to himself. Just as we said on our first day, God always takes the initiative. Praise his name for it. Now God does this, draws us to himself, by revealing Christ to us through his word and through his law. You know Christ is in the law. You don't get Christ out of the law, but Christ is in the law. He's the embodiment of it. And so we see elements and aspects of his character. We see that in the word and those things lead us to look upon him whom our sins, our transgression of that law, have pierced. In the cross, we see sin in all its ugliness, contrasted with God in all his glory and goodness. And our hearts are humbled. It leads us to abhor sin and long for holiness of heart and life, a character like Christ's. By his grace, we choose to turn from our sin, the second part of repentance, and seek the Lord. As I mentioned, we didn't go into confession of sin, where we go before God and verbally confess those things specifically that we have been shown by the Lord that stand between us and him. 
And then God points us to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? And assures us that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This experience is often referred to as justification by faith. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How many of you read the book Steps to Christ here? Now this was fascinating to me. I never realized this until I got ready for this particular message. The book Steps to Christ really is a book on salvation. And as I, ironically, as it is such, a book on salvation. In fact, it's said to be, by some, a, a, a response, I don't say a response, but coming in, in that context of God's revival of the message of righteousness by faith among his people in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In light of all that, I was a bit surprised to discover that Ellen White does not use the word justify or justification in the whole book. You'll never read it in the book Steps to Christ. The word justified is in there in one place. Page 40, where it says, those who acknowledge their guilt will be justified. The words justified, justified, and justification all come from variations of the Greek word for righteousness, dikaiosune. And today, often, we use the term righteousness by faith when we're discussing how to receive the righteousness of Christ for justification. Neither does Ellen White use the word sanctify, sanctified, or sanctification in the book Steps to Christ. Anybody ever noticed that before? I was floored when I said, wait a minute, it's got to be in here. Something's wrong. I've got a glitch. There's a reason I think that she did this. The author, Ellen White. I mean, she uses the terms elsewhere. Here in Review and Herald article, written in 1885, it says the righteousness by which we are justified is what? It's imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second, our fitness for heaven. And as I'm going to share with you a quote in a minute, some people want to major in the differences between these two things. And we get into trouble when we do that. Somebody once said that it's like two pieces of the, uh, two sides of the same sheet of paper. Now, I could ask you to take a sheet of paper and divide it, and you'd think, oh, I can rip it in half this way. No, not that way, this way. You really can't do it. Justification in the Christian life is the equivalent of that new birth experience. It's the work of a moment. Sanctification is the new life. Justification is like being born, and sanctification is like staying alive, and you really wouldn't separate the two. If I asked you which one's more important, being born and stay, or staying alive, it's kind of like, well, they both have their advantages, right? So she uses this terminology here in other places, but she doesn't use it in Steps to Christ. Justification is what's imparted. It's that work of a moment. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. One's our title for heaven. The other's our fitness for heaven. But she does speak of the concepts in the book Steps to Christ, as you're going to see here, page 63. It says, our only, our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, elsewhere she said justification, but you won't read that in the book Steps to Christ. But the concept is there. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. We call that sanctification. Those are the two components, and both make up righteousness by faith. So why would she steer clear of the terms? Now, I'm not sure. I'm, I couldn't ask her. But I have an idea, and I'm going to share with you a statement that I've read, and maybe you've read it in the book Faith and Works, page 18. In fact, two statements. The first one says this, The danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people, what? False ideas of justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. Why? Because he doesn't want us to be justified by faith. He doesn't want us to have this experience with Christ. So the devil works constantly at making the issue confusing. How many of you have ever been confused by justification by faith? Some of you are thinking right now, I sure wish this was a message on something else because this thing always confuses me. And by God's grace, hopefully we'll bring some clarity today. 
So the devil, one of the reasons I think that Ellen White steers clear of the, ter- the theological terms in the book Steps to Christ is number one, Satan is constantly trying to confuse the mind on the matter. And I think reason number two, he often enlists our help. Notice this statement from the 1888 materials. Ellen White says, many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Now, I just shared a statement from her. There are distinctions, but notice what she goes on to say. We're defining, trying to define minutely the fine points. Into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? You're in danger of making a world of an atom and an atom of a world. Sometimes people get into, it's not just this subject, we get into theological subjects and we'll take a term that's become a cliche term, like justification, and then we'll read into it all kinds of other stuff that the scripture may not at all bring up when talking about that. And so she warns off that ground. So I believe in Steps to Christ, she wanted to bring clarity and so didn't want to bring in all that theological term and give the opportunity for people to read things in. I think that the gospel is a very complex thing that is yet at the same time very simple and must be, or only complex thinking people could be saved. Now make no mistake, we're we're told that this is going to be a theme of study for us through the eternal ages, but I don't think that means that we can't understand clearly now how to be justified by faith. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, incidentally, this message, according to this uh, statement in Testimonies of Ministers, page 91, says, Justification through faith is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the what? Third angel's message important at this time in earth's history? It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit In a large measure, we would call that the outpouring of the latter rain, using scripture language. Sound important? You bet it is. So let's let's see what we can discover on this subject of righteousness by faith. Now, the first thing I want to do is just pose the question, what is righteousness? What is righteousness. And I thought I'd had something right there on it. Let's look up Isaiah 45. Turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 45. In fact, before I even look at Isaiah 45, let me just ask you this. What's the root word of righteousness? Right. And I'll tell you this, that right is right. Righteousness is what's right, not according to your idea or my idea, but it's what's right according to God's idea. A lot of people have opinions of right and wrong. We're not interested in people's opinions. Righteousness is what's right according to God. Isaiah 45, verse 19. Notice what the scripture says. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are what? That are right. Go with me to Psalm 119. Righteousness is what's right according to God's idea. Can we have any concept of what that is? We're going to Psalm 119, verse 172. Psalm 119, verse 172. It's a long psalm. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 172, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your what? All your commandments are righteousness. Now we know this, when we talk about the law being the moral law, that's what we mean. It tells us morally what's right and wrong. God's law is a standard of right and wrong. So righteousness is God's idea of what's right. The law of God defines that for us. Go to Deuteronomy 6, 
with me. Fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 24. Just asking the question, what is righteousness? Righteousness is what's right according to God's idea. We see that rightness defined in the law of God. And if you go to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, the Bible says, this is when the people had come to the Mount Sinai and God's recounting the experience and it was quaking and the Lord was there and he proclaimed the law in his majesty. It says, and you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die for this great fire will consume us? If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then did I say, yeah, okay. I was wondering that myself in a way. I was thinking, what was my, what was my point here? You know, I told you that the other day. When preachers are up, you guys don't know what's going through our heads. You think, oh, he's just calm and calm thinking, Lord, what was I getting at in this verse? And I looked at it, and see, I have six right there, and I thought, I'm on six. No, I was in five. So that's why, listen, that's, that's why you've got to study for yourselves. I was testing you is what I was doing this morning. <laughs> 624, 624 and 25, sorry. The Bible says, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. We've already said that. The only reason God gives us any kind of instruction is to preserve us alive. That's his purpose. He's not trying to ruin our day. He's not trying to take away things that we like. Notice verse 25 now. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Now we have to be careful sometimes. We want to... We, we, we get into the habit of talking disparagingly about the law of God because the law can't save us. Listen, just because the law can't save us doesn't mean it's not good. If we could keep the law of God, it would be righteousness for us because the law defines righteousness. It defines what's right according to God. That's what we're talking about. What is righteousness? It's what's right according to God. But there's more to righteousness than a list of do's and don'ts. There's a more to righteousness than seeing a list and say, okay, do not steal, do not bear false witness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I can go and look at that and do it, but that's, that's coming short of the Bible idea of righteousness. So we see righteousness defined by the law of God, but I want to go on. The commandments of God fall short of revealing God's righteousness to us the same way that a picture falls short of revealing a person, right? A picture of my family is not my family. If I go on trips, I travel a lot, and I have a picture of my family, that's great, but it's not the same thing. You understand what I'm saying? A tr the, the, the law of God is a transcript of God's character, but it's not the embodiment of God. And so righteousness is more than just a list. I want you to look at Isaiah 51. Now, I love this verse. It just takes us another step. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. Isaiah 51, verse 7. Now notice this. This is powerful. Isaiah 51, verse 7. The Lord says, listen to me, you who know what? Okay, now stay tuned. He's about to tell us the people who know righteousness. You who know righteousness, the people, you people in whose what? Whose heart is my law. So righteousness is not just an external thing or a list on a page that we can read. You have to have it in the heart. Now let me flesh something out for you here a little bit. The New Testament word, I had mentioned this already, for righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. This word is defined in the Strong's lexicon as integrity, virtue, purity of life, listen carefully, Rightness, we talked to uprightness, being right, 
correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Okay? So, I mean, it's just absolute rightness, being upright. And there's only one who has it, folks. I mean, this is, the Bible's introducing us to something that we don't have. And I'll touch on that in a moment. Well, let's touch on it now. Righteousness is, is, is the essence of the character of God. God is the only one who is righteous. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what should I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, you remember what Jesus said to him? Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. Now, I believe Jesus was trying to say, get that young man to recognize that the goodness he saw was because Jesus was God. But the point is this, Jesus was trying to make this clear, that there's only one source of righteousness, and that's God. There's one source of goodness, that's God. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, as we looked at the other day, there is no one good, no, not one. Goodness doesn't come from man. We don't, we don't, salvation isn't developing the good that's in ourselves. Have mercy. There is nothing good in us. That's why the Bible says we're to seek first his kingdom and what? His righteousness, because we don't have it. And righteousness, my brothers and sisters, is the requirement of heaven. Rightness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Okay? Don't tell me you paid your tithe. Don't tell me you went to church on Saturday. We, we do this. This is what God's people have done. And it, it's not just God's people. Let's just be clear on this. There are people who don't even worship God. But when you ask them if there's any kind of afterlife they believe in, why they're going there, you know what they're going to say? I'm a, I'm a good person. At least I try to be. There is no one good. No, not one. You get, it, it, James says you can't bring forth sweet water out of a bitter fountain. If I'm corrupt, what do all my own e attempts to be good amount to? If you've got a bitter fountain, all the water coming out is going to be bitter. No matter how hard that fountain tries to produce sweet water. Go to with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. The Bible says here, do you not know that the what? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's more to the text, but that's, that's the point. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom. Righteousness is required for eternal life. I want you to notice this statement from the Review and Herald of September 21, 1886. It says, why cannot those who claim to understand the scriptures see that God's requirement under grace is just the same he made in Eden, perfect obedience to his law? In the judgment, God will ask those who profess to be Christians, why did you claim to believe in my son and continue to transgress my law? The gospel of the New Testament is not the Old Testament standard lowered to meet the sinner and save him in his sins. God requires of all his subjects obedience, entire obedience. You know what entire obedience means? That means from the heart. That means even in the thoughts. I hope you're getting overwhelmed. I want to tell you, the, the Christian world today, doesn't. we've lost the sense of what it really means to be fit for heaven. When people heard the preaching in the New Testament, what did they do when the apostles were preaching? What shall we do? Because they were gripped, the Holy Spirit enlightened their mind, and they said, I don't have that kind of righteousness. God requires of all his subjects obedience, entire obedience to all his commandments. He demands now as ever perfect righteousness as the only title to heaven. You know why the Lord sets the standard so high? You know why? Because if it was any lower, you know what happens when we think we can accomplish it in our own strength? That's what we do. It's like men not asking for directions. Because we think we've got it figured out. <laughs> right? 
When you think you can do it in your... God wants to set the bar so high that when we look at it, we realize this is, this is out of my reach. And so when we as Christians try to soften it, when we as preachers try to soften it and make it more manageable, we're just taking away your need of Christ. And we're perpetuating self-righteous Phariseeism and Laodiceanism. It's like, hey, I think I can do that. I can be as good as that guy. I can be as good as that lady in the church. That's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter heaven. The book Faith and Works, page 101, says righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes to the law. But he is what? Incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. By faith he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son. Sorry. By faith he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son to the sinner's account. Hallelujah. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure, and God receives pardons, justifies the repentant believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his son. This is how faith is accounted righteousness. Now we're going to look at that a little bit further in a moment. How much righteousness do we have? That's a picture of absolute zero. That's where our righteousness stands. We don't have any. Where can we get it? There's only one place, and this is why we get into... People say, you know, you Christians, there's a lot of roads to heaven. No, there's not a lot of roads to heaven. You know why? Because righteousness is a requirement for heaven, and there's only one place to get it. And that place is Jesus Christ, and it's freely given in Him. You've got to go to Him for it. So when we're talking about righteousness by faith, we're simply talking about righteous, righteousness by no other way. That perfect rightness of thinking, feeling, and acting that we have to have for heaven to fit with the society of heaven can't come to us any other way than by faith. Now, how does it work? We're going to go to Scripture in one of the clearest, to me, one of the most clearest and powerful examples of righteousness by faith. And that's why it was given. It was a story of Abraham. We're looking at the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul explains to us from the story of Abraham how we obtain righteousness by faith. Romans chapter 4, go there with me. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, What shall we say that Abraham our father has found? Now, Abraham was called the father of the faithful. you see that in a minute. Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham what? Believed God, and it was accounted for him to him for Righteousness. Now, this is taking, this is taking the, the, the concept from the story that we had in our scripture reading in Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter, you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and God calls Abraham at 75 years of age out of his retirement to a place that he doesn't know where he's going. That's what scripture said. Now, I'm going to tell you that at 75 years of age, I am just sure Abraham was not thinking this would be a great time to move. And for those here who have even considered a move, whether young or old, whether it's a before or after retirement, I would guarantee that before you do that, you check into all your options. What's it like there? What's the weather like? Do they have a nice golf course nearby? Whatever it would happen to be. But the Bible says, God didn't give Abraham a travel brochure. 
Hey, Abraham, look, I want you to pick up and move everything. I know you've got some questions. Let me show you this beautiful spread. He didn't know where he was going, but at 75, the Lord said, go, and he went. And God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, at the time, Abraham had no children, and his wife was barren. She couldn't have children. She's a beautiful woman, couldn't have children. Even in her prime, she couldn't have children. Now, many years pass, and we come to Genesis 15, where we read. Why don't we look at it? Genesis 15, this is where Paul's drawing from. We're going to go back to Romans 4. But in Genesis 15, several years later, I'm going to say it's nearly 10 years later, God comes to Abraham again and repeats his promise that he's going to make him a great nation. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant? Right? So God had promised he's going to make him a great nation. Well, it's kind of hard to have a great big family when you don't even have one. Like, it's, Lord, you've got to work on this. He said, Abram, it's not different from us. We want it now. The Lord's not alarmed by the situation, but Abram is like, look, we're getting up there in years, and I mean, and, and keep in mind that Sarah's barren anyway, but I'm going to make you a great nation. So he got right now in my house as a servant. Verse 3, he says, Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he what? He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He didn't have any more evidence than that. He just showed him all the stars. And he said, Abram, I know it doesn't look like it now, but your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. You know, some of those stars were you and me today. Those are the descendants he was talking about. They came through the promise. So shall your seed be. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul takes this story and builds on it in Romans 4. Go back to Romans 4 with me. And as you're going to see, he's actually using this as a model to teach us how we receive the same righteousness that Abraham did. Again, Romans 4, verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was put to his account. It was put there like it wasn't there. It's like you have a bank account, and it's empty, and somebody makes a deposit for you, and bam, now you have money in the bank. But it wasn't money. It was righteousness, and God put righteousness there. That's what the Scripture tells us. He counted Abraham's faith for righteousness. The apostle goes on in verse 4, Now to him who works... The wages are counted as grace, not counted as grace, but as debt. Right? You earned it if you worked for it, but he didn't work for it, and that's the point that he's making. Now, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in our story and look at verse 13 with me. He says, For the promise that he, Abraham, would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Now let me just clarify. That simply means if there's any other way to get there, then it isn't the grace of God. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about what's undeserved. We're talking about what we can't obtain. And Paul's just saying if there's some other way to get there from here besides Christ and his righteousness, then we wouldn't need God's grace.
Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is trans no, uh, no transgression. Now you're going to have to bear with, you know, Paul gets real wordy sometimes and he's going to do so here, just bear with me. It says, verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. That's why I say it applies to us. It's not only those who are natural-born descendants of Abraham, it's those who have the faith of Abraham. Which he goes on to say here, but also to, again, verse 16, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the what? The father of us all. He's the father of the faithful, we say. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, here's where, here's where he gets real practical with this. In verse 17, he says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, not just the Israelite nation, in the presence of him whom he believed. Now, the, again, the language is choppy here, but here's what I want you to see. Paul's about to describe how Abraham viewed God, how he believed in God. The reason this is important is because when we say we're saved by faith or justified by faith, another word for faith is belief, well, you can believe in different ways. The Bible says the devil and his angels believe. You want to say, oh, you just got to believe Jesus died on the cross. Guess what? Satan and his angels believe Jesus died on the cross. Well, you believe he's got to believe he's the son of God. Satan and his angels believe he's the son of God. So there are different ways to believe. So Paul is going to show us how Abraham believed. He's going to show us the way he viewed God. And this has everything to do in how we become justified the same way Abraham was. In verse 17, he says, in the presence of him who he believed, God who gives what? God who gives life to the who? To the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You know, there are Christians today who question whether God really created in six literal days. Because man can't explain it. God forbid that our faith is only based on what man can explain. But scripture tells us that God spoke and it was. And what Paul's telling us is, Abraham believed that about God. He believed that God could call the dead to life. Do you believe that? Now be careful. Because I, I, I don't know many Christians who wouldn't say, oh, yeah, of course God can call the dead to life. Because as soon as you say that, you've just taken every argument out of your mouth about what God can't help you do. Ah, uh, God can bring the dead to life, but he can't help me overcome this sin. Are you serious? And this is where this practically comes in. Paul's trying to explain to us that Abraham believed that God can bring life from death. And he can call things that don't even exist as though they did. Let there be light. Well, God, there's no light. Oh, I guess there is light. Let there be. Boom. This is what Abraham believed about God. He continues in verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of what? Of many nations, according to what? According to what was spoken by who? See, Abraham knew that if God said it, he could trust it. He could believe it. It didn't matter what his senses said. And it became a reality. He became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. He believed in it. Contrary to hope. Let's just flesh this out. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. All of your descendants. Oh, by the way, you have no children. And your wife is barren and she can't have children. And I'm going to wait until after menopause. So it's not like she could have children in her prime. God waits until beyond her prime and comes back again. In fact, you have the whole story in between where Abraham and Sarah try to work it out themselves. Sarah says, you know, I got an idea. Let's go. Here's my slave girl. God said it was going to be your child, not my child. Maybe he wanted us to work it out. And God had to come back and give him the promise again. And Abraham's like, wait a minute. 
we've already got this worked out. He says, no, you don't. You're going to have a child. And both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the idea it was so preposterous. They named the child Isaac. The name means laughter. Because Sarah laughed when she heard God say she was going to have a child in her old age. But contrary to hope, this is what the Bible is saying, contrary to hope, Abraham believed in hope. Now it gets better, and I don't want you to miss this next verse. Verse 19 says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider, notice two things, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. Seems kind of impolite. And the deadness, but he's talking about from the standpoint of childbearing or, or, or fathering a child. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Let me just interject here. The apostle just told us that one of the definitions of being weak in faith is considering your own body. He was not weak in faith because he didn't consider his own body, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. Let me call that circumstances. Now, Abraham could have easily said, Lord, it's, and, and he did in part. They laughed at it, but he still believed what God said in spite of the, how ludicrous the whole thing sounded. He did not consider his own body or the deadness of Sarah's womb. But when Jesus Christ, when God through Jesus Christ promises you a transformed life through the righteousness of Christ, how many times are you tempted to say, but look at my weaknesses, and you start looking at your body. You start looking at your, your frailties. You start looking at all of your imperfections. Take your eyes off of those. Amen. That's being weak in faith. Don't consider your own body. And then we look at circumstances and say, but the thing is, Lord, I was, the thing, if I would have had better parents, or if I would have come to the church earlier, if I didn't have all of these obstacles, and we look at circumstances, i.e. the deadness of Sarah's womb. And we say it's impossible. Brothers and sisters, let me make something very clear. This was impossible for Abraham and Sarah. But it was not impossible for God. And God is not limited by your limitations. But I can tell you that all day long and your feelings are going to tell you something different. That's why the Bible says faith and feeling are distinct. We're not saved by feeling. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Not being weak in faith, that uh, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And verse 21, notice, and being fully convinced. I mean, the Bible could have just, Paul just could have said he was convinced. But he says he was fully convinced. He was absolutely convinced. No shred of doubt that God could do and would do what he promised. Being fully convinced that, God, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, therefore. You know what that word therefore means? For this reason. This is the reason. Don't miss this. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. The implication is, if he didn't believe in the very way that Paul described, it would not have been accounted to him for righteousness. If he would have considered his own body, if he would have considered circumstances, and if he would have doubted and said, well, God can't do anything with this situation, if he would have doubted that God could not fully complete and perform what he had promised, then he wouldn't have had the quality of faith that could have been counted righteousness. So let me ask you today, do you believe that God can do for you what he has promised? Do you believe that God can transform your life, make you holy, cleanse your heart and your mind and your thoughts, fill you with his righteousness so your thoughts, your feelings, and actions just reflect Christ? I'm not asking if you feel that way. I'm asking if you believe that way. 
Do you believe God can do that? He's promised it. Do you believe God can save to the uttermost all who come to him through Christ? If you can, and if you will, then that faith will be accounted to you as the righteousness of Christ. Notice what he says. Again in verse 21, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for who? Also for us. Why? It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. It shall be imputed to us who believe just like Abraham believed. And so his faith was counted as righteousness. I, I'm debating, I'm looking at the clock and I'm just going to do this. I always run out of time for this part, so I'm not going to do it today. You know that Martin Luther, the reformer, had a problem with the book of James. Because James said a man isn't only justified by works, he, by faith, he's justified by works. He said, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You have to see it. Go with me to James. We're going to do this quickly, but go with me to the book of James. This is such a powerful verse. And the Lord is telling me not to pass it by this morning. James chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was what? Fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now you have to get this. This is powerful. As I said, now Luther, when he first read James and he read some of that language, he thought this doesn't sound right. I mean, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith, but then James says Abraham was justified by works. But I want you to notice there's a span of time in between. And James even brings it up. Because when God told Abraham he was justified by faith, it's when he made the promise way, way back before Isaac ever came around. He made the promise and he said, you're going to be a father of many nations. And it said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. What James is telling us is when we see Isaac born, we see Isaac grow up and then God tests Abraham. He tests Abraham to see if the righteousness, let me rephrase that. God didn't need to see it, but to demonstrate that the righteousness he pronounced was there. See, I want you to understand this. When God pronounces us righteous, it's not a trick with smoke and mirrors. Christ lives in us. He transforms us. And we see in the life of Abraham that test of faith. And James says, when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, he was justified by works because he demonstrated that the scripture spoken so long ago was fulfilled in the life of Abraham. He's not taking away from the justification by faith. He's saying that when God works that experience of justification by faith, it brings a reality of change in your life. I want you to notice a couple things here in closing. Patriarchs and Prophets tells us Abraham's unquestioning obedience is one of the most striking evidences of faith to be found in all the Bible. Just take that home. Look, you don't have to be a theologian. You say, well, what is faith? All these people get in these big terms. Faith is trusting what God says. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you believe what God says? Not do you feel it. Not do you see it. Not do circumstances look like it can work out. Do you believe it? Abraham's unquestioning obedience it's one of the most striking evidences of faith to be found in all the Bible. Book Faith and Works says, While God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments. Let me, I, I changed this slide. I want to show you something here. How many of you have seen this picture before? 
drives me batty. I mean, all respect to the artist, but this is not righteousness by faith. You go to the book of Zechariah and you see that God takes away the filthy garments. He doesn't cover the filthy garments. Now, I know you can say, yeah, it's blessed me. I mean, it's given me, okay, you know, I'm not trying to trash the, the artist, but you understand what I'm saying, and you're going to see it in this statement here. God doesn't just cover up our sin. He takes away our sin and clothes us in his righteousness. While God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience. Look, obedience is just me continually trusting what God says. And so I'm going to do what he says because I believe it. Let me back up. There must be continual obedience through active, living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. James writes of Abraham and says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? In order for man to be justified by faith, faith must reach a point where it will control the affections and impulses of the heart. And it is by obedience that faith itself is made perfect. It's actively stepping out in that trust in what God says. Brothers and sisters, can you take God at his word today? Can you believe what God says? Can you believe his promises despite what you see and feel? Can you believe that what God has promised you, he is fully able to perform? Then let it be accounted to you for righteousness. Father in heaven, oh Father, we praise your holy name that in spite of our bankruptcy of anything good, in spite of the fact that we have absolutely no righteousness, Father, you have freely offered us the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, if we will simply take you at your word. And Lord, I confess on my part, and I'm sure on behalf of many here, and ask that you would forgive us for so many times when we have considered our own body, our own weaknesses, the circumstances around us, and questioned your promises. But Father, today by faith we say, we can believe what you say. And we believe that you are fully capable of finishing the work you have started in us. Now, Father, let it be according to thy word. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.